Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. I'll be reading uh, Matthew 14, uh, 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. The word of God for the people of God. This week, we celebrate Thanksgiving, which sort of kicks off the big holiday season and means that many of us will soon travel to be with friends and family. For many, this season is marked with anxiety about what exactly those gatherings might hold. Will there be enough space for everyone? Will there be enough money to afford the gifts and all the food? Will there be good conversation and catching up, or will everything devolve into chaos? Well, despite our worries, there will be plenty to distract us from these relational pitfalls. There will likely be more than enough food. There will be Black Friday sales, and there will be lots and lots and lots of football to take our minds off of all the more controversial things. That is, unless you have a house divided on rivalry day. Well, that's something I don't have to worry about. All my people will be cheering on the Wolfpack, some of them, from their seats in Carter-Finley Stadium. Though the Thanksgiving holiday isn't technically about football, the rivalry week tradition is pretty old. 150 years old, to be exact. Yes, 150 years ago, the Princeton Tigers and the Yale Bulldogs met on Thanksgiving Day in Hoboken, New Jersey, surrounded by 5,000 fans. And in just 10 years, that crowd grew from 5,000 to 40,000 fans, which signaled to the world that this rivalry game thing where two rivals got together, hosted on neutral territory on Thanksgiving Day, was a terrific, or at least a very marketable idea. Some reporters even called it the greatest sporting event this country has has to show. As folks swarmed to the New York metro area for the football game, students and fans began to gather in Times Square for tailgating and celebration. Though many of them, now get this in your minds, many of them arrived in horse-drawn carriages. 
Their tailgating party in midtown Manhattan marked the beginning of yet another Thanksgiving Day tradition. Want to know what it is? Have a guess? The parade. It's exactly right. It wouldn't become known as the Macy's Parade until the 1920s, but the start of that parade tradition was born from the popularity of the rivalry football game between Princeton and Yale. Did y'all know that? I had no idea. Since those earliest years, both the football game and the parade have kept us all coming back time and time again, searching for a large-scale communal experience of joy. It's not only about the football game. It's not only about the balloons. It is about a shared experience of joy. Now, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the first Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It wouldn't be, or it's not the 100th Macy's Parade, because in 1942, 43, and 44, we took a break. Resources like rubber and helium were needed for the war effort and couldn't be spared for the unnecessary things like parade balloons. But every other year, the parade has carried on, just like the football games for over a hundred years. With thousands of participants and hundreds of thousands of in-person spectators, with millions more gathered online and at their TVs, this annual gathering, the Thanksgiving Day Parade, is one of the largest recurring public celebrations in modern history. Its near-constant presence, even in times of struggle and scarcity, have been a welcome interruption of joy as we have faced many challenges as a people in these last 100 years. That is what festivals do, though. They draw us out of ourselves and into community where we remember the past that was held by our tradition and we look forward with hope to better days that we hope will come and we share in gratitude for all that is in the present moment. In other words, we give thanks. But Americans are not the only people to participate in these kinds of festivals, the events that help us to mark time as it moves from month to month and year to year, from one celebration to another, and to depend upon these traditioned gatherings to pull us out of our deepest depressive states. Do you remember in 2020, it was around April when people started calling for it to just go ahead and be Halloween, and then go ahead and cook that turkey. Go ahead and put the Christmas tree up. Are we not done with this year yet? We rely on our festivals to bring us joy, to bring us levity, and ultimately to bring us together. And we're not the only ones to do so. In fact, people of every race and nationality and religion have turned to these moments of shared celebration to transcend whatever hardship is most present at the time. The rhythms of life in ancient Judaism were framed by significant festivals, three of them to be exact, Passover, Pentecost, and Booths, all of which celebrated freedom and abundance. 
It was customary for the Israelite people to travel from Jerusalem, leaving behind the responsibilities of work and the comfort of their own households in order to join these festivities in the city. But their act of leaving behind all that stuff was not just about a fun trip to the big city, but it was an embodied journey, one that provided physical space and spiritual space for God to show up and provide them once again with God's abundance. God's provision marked the nature of all the festivals and was a distinct reversal of the other ancient relationships between gods and people. In other ancient religions, similar festivals occurred, but the people brought offerings in hopes that their gods would be grateful to them and for their devotion. The people brought offerings in hopes that God would be thankful. But for Israel and for Yahweh, the offering of gifts happened in the opposite direction. The people came empty-handed, and God provided. And the people responded in gratitude with promises to live more deeply in love with the law and with God. These Jewish festivals, which framed their liturgical year, were reminders of God's constant provision and humanity's grateful response. These festivals were intended to produce emotions and experiences of humility and joy and gratefulness to remind the Israelites that their community, different from the others, was grounded in generosity and gratitude, completely dependent upon the gifts of a good and loving God. In this way, the festivals offered the possibility of a different way of life, one in which all claims and pressures and realities could be suspended, left behind. These ancient celebrations and festivals modeled a different way of living, one that was both a reminder and an example of how all of life should be grounded in God's gifts and in humanity's grateful response. I wonder what kind of church, what kind of community ours could be if we also grounded our lives in God's good gifts and in our own gratitude and response. Today's gospel reading brings us to a shoreline, a shore lined with a crowd of people who have followed Jesus as he attempted to steal away to a deserted place. Jesus must have been grieving because before today's reading picks up, we find that he has just heard the news that his friend and mentor, John the Baptist, has been murdered in Herod's palace. There were also rumors about Jesus' relationship with John, and that connection alone meant that Jesus' life was now very much in danger. So deep in grief, and with every reason to be afraid, Jesus and his disciples retreated. They attempted to be away from the people. But there on that remote shore, they saw that the crowds had followed them there. And the disciples began to worry about the lack of provision. They came to Jesus with a plan, a plan to send the people away back into town so that they could buy their own food. But Jesus said, no, you feed them. Now, the gospel doesn't tell us where the food came from, 
But what it does say is that the meager supply of loaves and fish that the disciples found in their possession didn't seem like enough. Bring them to me, Jesus says. And in a scene that unfolds much like the Passover table or our communion table, Jesus looks up to heaven holding the meager supplies. Jesus looks up to heaven and blesses the bread and breaks the bread and then gives it to the disciples who in turn go and serve the gathered crowds. The people came empty-handed and God provided. Surely this was a moment of shared gratitude when a whole crowd of people got to witness a miracle when out of sheer scarcity came magnificent abundance. Surely the people, upon seeing the leftovers, 12 baskets full, the gospel says, surely they raised their voices and recited the psalm, give thanks to the Lord for God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This would have been a popular refrain at their other festivals. I wonder if they recited it there. And if so, did the memories of God's provision and God's presence from the Egyptian exodus to the meal that was before them now, did it all come rushing back over them? And did it result in a spontaneous outburst of collective joy? What was the vibe like there on the beach that day as the crowds realized their bellies were now full? Was it exuberant? Was it loud? Was it lively? Was it like a makeshift festival right there on the beach as people who had left it all behind received the gifts of their good and gracious God? And did they respond with collective gratitude? I wonder... You know, it it all seems kind of strange to me that though these kinds of stories frame our whole understanding of the gospel, most people, if asked, would not describe the church or the church experience as a festival. Most people would not describe the church experience as a festival, one with a touch of exuberance or lively gratitude flowing freely amongst the joyful. And yet, that is precisely what the church is intended to be. Diana Butler Bass writes that the church is intended to be a festive community dependent upon gifts of abundance. Everything in the church is a gift. Bread is a gift. Wine is a gift. Life and joy are gifts, gifts that no one can ever pay back. And yet God never withholds. All we can do is receive All we can do is receive in awe of such favor and grace. And all we can do is say thank you to the giver. And all we can do is then pay it forward through humble service to others. Still more often than not, we find ourselves just like the disciples in the story today who bring their gifts to Jesus, saying, surely this isn't enough. 
We find ourselves like the disciples in the story today who bring their gifts to Jesus, saying, surely what I have isn't enough to meet the need. Shouldn't we just send them away? And still, despite these feelings and fears that really are rooted in insecurity and scarcity, God is still meeting us here providing all that we need and showing us time and time again that in reality, it is more than enough. This week, we find ourselves around festive tables as we gather together to celebrate a a national holiday that is called Thanksgiving. Though it is a national holiday and not a religious one, there is potential for us to intentionally leave behind the claims and the pressures and the realities that stress us out, that cause division, that alienate us from one another as things so often devolve into conflict and chaos. This day is called Thanksgiving, and we now know that giving thanks is a Christian ethic. Giving thanks is a Christian ethic. It is the appropriate response to the good many gifts that we have received from God, the abundance that we have received from God. So what if we intentionally left behind everything else as we headed towards our tables? No matter their size and scope, no matter who our dinner companions may be, no matter if the experience will meet our expectations or not, what if we approach the tables this year with more than just hope, but with expectation that God will meet us there? That God will meet us there and turn any sense of scarcity into downright abundance flipping our trials and tribulations into festival and celebration of God's goodness, God's abundance, and God's gracious presence. After all, the festival is both a reminder and an example of how life ought to be, grounded in God's gifts and our gratitude. So how about this year? We look beyond the food even beyond the football, and maybe even beyond the parade for our hope and joy. Maybe this year we could simply go with faithful anticipation, with soft and wide eyes, wide enough for us to see beyond our own expectations, and with gratitude that helps us realize that God is indeed good all the time even here, even now, even tomorrow and the next day the same. And let us start right now practicing that ethic, living life as it should be, grounded in God's gifts and our grateful response. Lord, help us. Amen.